Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the OSSB Podcast. This is the November 2020 edition. So happy to be here with you, me and the podcast team. We are so excited that we're going to make this one a two-parter. We are very excited to bring you a very special segment. We will be joined by Mr. Jamie K. Oxendine from the Lumbee Tribe and uh, was informed that, hey, you shouldn't just have Native Americans in, in November to talk about Thanksgiving because we will learn in this podcast that they do things all year round that I never knew about, that I didn't learn in the history book. Mr. Oxendine gives us a whole new perspective. He's very well read, well versed, and has a tremendous amount of experience. And we're going to learn a lot over the next 45 to 50 minutes. So sit back and relax for part one of the November 2020 OSSB podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Some of our students met you in December when you spoke to fourth and fifth graders. Can you tell us a little about yourself? My name is Jamie Oxendine. I use the middle initial K because there's quite a few Jamie Oxendines, especially in tribal territory in the great state of North Carolina. I'm a member of the Lumbee tribe. People always ask, how do we spell it? And they said, well, we didn't spell. But after European contact, we do spell it L-U-M-B-E-E. We are sometimes referred to as people of the dark water, people of the black water, people of the pine. All Native American names can translate to something that sometimes is geographical. And I grew up in the beautiful state of North Carolina. I moved to Ohio many years ago. I taught public schools, I'm K-12 licensed in music and music education. I wrote my thesis and did other works on music and Native American culture. I've also taught at the collegiate level. I've had the joy of teaching at Bowling Green State Ohio State, University of Toledo, and Lord's College in Sylvania, a very small Franciscan school. And I also worked as a Native American liaison at Ohio University in Athens. I concentrate on the Southeastern Woodland Studies and the nations of what we now call the Southeast of the United States. But I'm pretty well versed in all of Native America. I have written several papers on the subject that are posted several different websites online. One of them is called powwows.com. You can go there and it's a beautiful place for resources on most of Native America. And they also list events. Unfortunately, with COVID, there's no events going on. We're hoping that next summer we can get back to having our powwows and other Native American events, which there are several in Ohio. In September, we were allowed to have the Perrysburg powwow in the last week of September, this past September, working hard with the health department. The governor said, yes, we do need cultural events for the stability of our people. And it was desperately needed. We had to follow strict guidelines for face masks, social distancing and other things like that. And we've got a nice turnout. We're right on the river there in beautiful Perrysburg, Ohio, which is about two and a half hours north of Columbus. But that unfortunately was the only powwow in the state. Uh, the rest of them were canceled or they weren't able to work with the health department to have it. The closest powwow to you guys next year, Lord willing, will be Lancaster. We'll have a powwow scheduled hopefully the first week of August. 
there is an Indian center in Columbus and they help with doing various things for the Native American community, including food drives, fresh produce drives, I think at least once a week and some other drives for clothing and things like that. The community in Ohio is small. There's probably not even 50,000 Native Americans in the entire state, whereas my tribe alone, the Lumbee, are close to 60,000 strong. Mm. We are in the southeastern part of uh, North Carolina. There are eight tribes in the state of North Carolina. There are no tribes in the state of Ohio. There are people that are native that live in Ohio, but there are no state recognized tribes or federal recognized tribes in the entire state of Ohio. Sadly, the last group of natives in the state were forced from their homes, and that would be the Wyandotte. They also called themselves Wendat and various other pronunciations. And they were in what is now Wyandotte County and the surrounding areas. The county was named after the tribe because the entire county was the Wyandotte Reservation. And they were forcibly removed by 1840. They were all forcibly marched to Fort Hamilton, which is Cincinnati, put on riverboats and forced out west to what would eventually be reservations in Oklahoma, where they still have their reservation. Ohio, like many of the Eastern states, followed suit on the Removal Act, which was passed in 1830 under Jackson's administration. But the first president to forcibly remove Native Americans was George Washington. And every president, all the way up to William McKinley, had some type of policy to forcibly remove Native Americans from their homeland to other lands. Even before the United States became a country, one of the first things that they wanted to do was get rid of the indigenous population by forcibly removing them uh, west of the Appalachian Mountains. Then when the colonists said, oh, we want the beautiful land west of the Appalachian Mountains, they said, well, let's forcibly remove them to the Midwest at that time. It was called the Old Northwest. That's why Ohio is referred to as part of the Old Northwest Territory. When they discovered that Ohio and Michigan and Wisconsin and Illinois and Indiana had uh, beautiful land that was excellent for farming. They said, well, we got to remove these native people even farther west. Let's move them west of what we call the Great River, which was the Mississippi. And it just kept going. So that is why many native nations live on forced removal land that are called reservations. Other terms for it is boundaries, ranches, rancheros, settlements, and various other things like that. So Ohio population of natives are people that returned during the Relocation Act. The federal government felt in the 50s, 1950s that, oh, we made a huge mistake in removing the indigenous people. Let's see if we can make it up to them by bringing them back. So they passed the Relocation Act. And this was to give Native Americans jobs in urban centers and also give them a home, an apartment or a, a house and help establish them into the now the 20th century way of living and life. The problem with that is it didn't bring back some of the original tribes to their homeland. It was opened up to all tribes. Mm -hmm. So instead of bringing back specifically the Wyandotte, the Shawnee, the Odawa, the Potawatomi, and other tribes that would have been in Ohio, 
it was opened up to all tribes. So urban centers like Cleveland, Columbus, and Cincinnati, as we call it, three C's, drew natives from as far away as Washington. So that's why even today you have a nice population of natives of the Lakota, perhaps the Navajo, the Cheyenne, the Arapaho, and tribes from far out west that came to the three C's and stayed and are living to this day. Other great centers of this Relocation Act became Detroit, specifically with its auto industry. Down south, the Lumbee, my people, a lot of us went to Baltimore, Detroit, Houston, and Los Angeles for jobs, and we created Lumbee centers there. The American Indian Center in Columbus is based on this relocation where now you have all of these natives living in these cities and they came together and created urban Indian centers where they could have their culture and be around their own people and various other things like that. Some of these cities ended up having whole Native American communities. For instance, like in Columbus, we have a German village. In Cleveland, there's a Indian I mean, excuse me, there's Italian village. And in many cities, you've got all kinds of cultures ranging from uh, whole blocks that are just Polish or Hebrew or Italian, German, et cetera. And in Baltimore, there's a whole block and a few blocks that are just Lumbee because all the Lumbee settled in that area. And you can find that in several other cities where there's just certain natives in those cities. The Relocation Act, unfortunately, was yet another attempt at the federal government to control the native people and what the native people could do and, and how they could live. And we're still trying to get from underneath all of those. We still consider ourselves to be controlled by the man, if you will. A perfect example is even now in 2020, we are always referred to as other or during the week of the election, if you're watching CNN, election night, CNN did a chart of how the voting was going, and they listed the white vote, the African-American vote, the Asian vote, the Hispanic vote, and then they had the word something else, which is appalling that we, the indigenous people of this land, are still called other, and we're still called something else. Something else? Actually, yeah. Wow. Yeah, something else. It was screenshotted by someone and it just spread like wildfire on Facebook. And we are still demanding CNN release a formal apology that they could at least put the Native American and other cultures that perhaps are so small there may not be an actual number for. Them. But when I filled out my uh, COVID test, I got my first test in June. Other was the only choice I had. And they kept saying that they wanted to keep track of how COVID was affecting every population. And I uh, went to check race and it had a whole list. There were probably like 10 things on there. There was white American, Caucasian American, black American, African American, Latino, non-Latino, Hispanic, non-Hispanic, Asian, on, on. And then the very last thing was other. And it didn't even have a line, just said other. So I checked other. I wrote in Native American in the little white space and circled it several times with my ink pen to let people know, hey, I'm not other, I am Native right. American. Uh, insurance papers, all kinds of applications, still we are just 
other. And it really makes us upset and mad. Why can't you put down Native America, American Indian, or indigenous people? At least acknowledge us that we are still here. Is there a is there a a movement or a process to get that removed? You know, some legally. Yeah, everything from small tiny communities to there's large national movements to change small applications to include us as American Indian. Uh, about half of them, you'll see American Indian Alaska Native as an option for a choice. And if someone wants that on their birth certificate, uh, and even some states, if you want to, you can say, hey, put me down as Native American for driver's license and other things like that. Um, the push really happened a few years ago with changing Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day. Yeah. And it started with cities and it has moved up to counties and even some states are saying, hey, why are we celebrating Christopher Colombo for arriving in the New World in 1492 as an integral part of the history of the United States? Right. When we should be celebrating that there were over 500 nations already here when the man arrived. Mm-hmm. So let's give credit to the indigenous people. So there is a movement there to change little things like that. And hopefully one of these days um, you won't even see other on there or other will be on applications because maybe it's um, a population that is very small and we still want to include them, but we don't want to offend them by writing down the wrong thing. Right. Yeah. That happens with, with people with disabilities too, you know, it's, it, you got yes. visual Absolutely. impaired, uh, blind, uh, you know, and it's, it's like the, the labels change, uh, constantly. So, you know, you don't want to offend anybody, but Correct. you also want to make sure you, you got everybody, you know, classified the right way. And I've heard you say the word Indian a few times. Is, is that a still, is that an accepted term? Uh, or is it a misconception that, that Indian is kind of an ugly word to use when you refer to somebody who's Native American? It depends on who you talk to. You will okay. find a great deal of the people in the culture still like the word. They have no problem with the word. Very young to very old. Mm-hmm. You will find that some want to use the term American Indian, Native American, uh, Indigenous Peoples, First Nations is used uh, quite a bit in Canada. Occasionally, you'll even hear the word aboriginals of North America, inhabitants of the New World. There's so many, Mm -hmm. and there's pros and cons and debates on which is which. To come down to it, what most people would prefer if you could refer to them as what nation they are. Of course, you'd have to find out. So I tell a lot of my uh, students, I always told them, and I tell everybody, if you know someone is Native, Please do not walk up to them and say, what kind of Indian are you? Unfortunately, I get that constant uh, presentation. People say, what kind of Indian are you? And I'm not trying to be rude, but if I think that person is Caucasian, I might throw it back at them and say, what kind of white person are you? <laughs> and sometimes I get and I say, well, actually, you started this conversation, I didn't. And most of the time they go, oh, I get you. That was, that was pretty stupid of me to ask that question, wasn't I? I said, it was. <laughs> or they'll say, I asked a full question. I said, you did. Um, don't always assume. Um, you might be correct and then say, may I ask, 
if you are native, could you tell me what nation you are? And mm. they will be happy to let you know, oh, well, I'm impressed that you asked kindly that way, and I belong to this nation. There are 574 Native American tribes in just the United States that are federally recognized. There are 62, if I'm not mistaken, I could be off, that are state recognized. And then there's several that are seeking either state or federal recognition. In Canada, there's 614 First Nations. And in Mexico, there are, I always get this number right, wrong, um, I think there's 28 or 48 indigenous people's groups that are not Hispanic or Latino or have any Hispanic or Latino connections. They are the descendants of the tribes like the Mayan, the Aztec, Aztec yeah. Toltec, yeah. and many other nations there. And many of them speak that language and have no connection to Spain whatsoever. Mm. And that's a huge stereotype we do. We think Mexico, and the first thing in our mind is everybody is Mexican. You use Mexican for the nation and the nationality, but there are people there that have no ties to the Spain or the Spanish language. Um, another example is Brazil. You mentioned Brazil and everybody thinks Latin America. They seem sure. to forget that one of the predominant languages down there is actually Portuguese, not Spanish. Mm -hmm. And you have a lot of Native American nations down there that do not speak any of the European languages and they are still almost what we might say pure blood or not of any European blood. And this can be the same for both continents. When we say Native America, we are including the New World, North sure. and South America. So if you ask somebody, you might find someone that if you say Indian, they'll get very offended and they'll correct you. Others may say, yes, Indian is good. I hate the term Native American. I prefer the term Indian, and you'll find vice versa. Indigenous peoples has been pushed a lot, but some people also have a problem with that because it's a European word. And then tribes are also trying to tell people to use our original name. So many tribes are known by several names, including my tribe like the Lumbee. You had Europeans come over and not take the time to learn the language of the people. And they mispronounced it, and eventually they tried and to uh, spell it in their way of spelling. This is, why, this is why some tribes may have 20 different ways to spell their name, because you have to remember the English spelled it one way, the French spelled it another way, the Spanish spelled it one way, the Portuguese, what would eventually be uh, Germans, Italians, Russians all spelled it phonetically according to how they pronounced it. And even in the English language, you had many different ways of spelling something long before we had standardized dictionaries. Europeans also sometimes relied on what a neighboring nation called a nation, and they called them that name too. In the Great Lakes, an example is Chippewa. It is a native word. It refers to a certain type of people that had a certain unique moccasin. Um, it comes from a word that sounds like Shepawa, and there are different ways to pronounce it. So if anyone hears or sees this, there's more than one way to pronounce many of the native words, just like the dialects we have in English. And they would sew their moccasin in such a way that the vamp on top of the foot, the leather would kind of pucker up, and it literally meant puckered feet. And there are a lot of ways to mispronounce it also. 
they sometimes refer to themselves, however, as Ojibwe, or they use the term Anishinaabe for all of the tribes in that area. The word refers to people of the three fires. That includes the Odawa, the Potawatomi, and the Ojibwe. Well, through mispronunciations and misspellings, it came out various different ways. Another example of a tribe that would have been right here in beautiful Ohio is the Odawa. That is how they pronounced their name. But the French mispronounced it and misspelled it, and they said Ottawa. And uh -huh. you find that Ottawa is used all over Columbus. There's an Ottawa County, there's an Ottawa Town, there's an Ottawa Glandorf Village, and you hear it on and on. Another example is Sioux. Uh, they call themselves Lakota or Nakota, Dakota, and there's seven, seven different variations of the great nations of that language. But their enemies called them Sioux. And by the time the Europeans got that far west, they just assumed that was a name for the nation. And unfortunately, it stuck. But they refer to themselves as Lakota. And I can give you more and more and more examples. The largest tribe in the country is the Dene. Most people don't know that word. That's what they call themselves. You know them by their Spanish word, Navajo. Some tribes have been working with the states and the federal government to officially change back to their original name. Uh, one tribe in Wisconsin for the longest time were known by Winnebago, but that's not what they call themselves in their own language. In their own language, they are called the Ho-Chunk people, and they have been changing that name on everything with the federal government to even when you go to that part of the country, you'll see the word Ho-Chunk on signs, and you don't see the word Winnebago anymore. In the southeast is the word Cherokee, which many members of that tribe will tell you that's not what we call ourselves. In fact, that's a mispronunciation by the English of a mispronunciation of the Spanish of a mispronunciation word by the Choctaw people of what they call their neighbors. So you can see it gets pretty bad. I had a student at UT when I was teaching decided I'm going to do a paper on, I said, pick three tribes and give me a, a short synopsis on three tribes. And my student said, I'm going to do the, um, the Maumee, the Miami, and the Miami. And I said, that's the same tribe. There's just three different pronunciations <laughs> of the same tribe. One is what they call themselves, Miami. Mm -hmm. One is the mispronunciation in English, Miami. And the other is the mispronunciation in French, which is Maumee. Oh, wow. So he had to do a little bit more research, sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we just don't see this stuff in our history books. We don't. But to get a different perspective about this, you know, about our country and about the people who are here is definitely a great education. It puts a different spin on Thanksgiving a little bit. Yeah. Uh, this time of year coming up. Because uh, you know we're yes, always definitely. Yeah, that was the next subject I think you wanted me to speak on. <laughs> I wrote a detailed paper on it. You can find that at powhouse.com. Also on my blog. I'll send you my blog later when we're done. Okay. One of the things that I'm constantly telling people that want me to do presentations is let's sometimes do something on a different month besides November. Before it was declared Native American Heritage Month, we were always asked to come into an elementary school and do a presentation. And I would always tell them, I said, 
because of Thanksgiving, right? The teacher would say, yes. I said, well, that's fine, but why don't you have me come in in May or have me come in in September or come totally different months. So students realize we haven't gone anywhere. We're still here and we don't just show up on November 1st and then live till November 30th and you don't hear from us again. But the holiday that we celebrate, most people have forgotten where it came from. The original holiday really doesn't have much to do with the Puritans at Plymouth Rock at all, or, or the settlers of Jamestown, which were long before Plymouth. During the American Revolution, when it seemed like the colonists were in dire straits and were definitely not going to win this war, Washington asked, if possible, for the Continental Congress to have a formal day of thanksgiving and prayers. And he requested, if possible, that it be in November and that all the colonists pray for the revolution. Everyone seems to forget that we were revolting against the British Empire. We were the insurgents, according to the empire. And when he became president, he declared a day of formal Thanksgiving and he put it on, on a Thursday in November. And some of the uh, states continued to follow this, specifically the New England states. After a while, it kind of fell out of favor in the Southern states and it was kind of forgotten because it wasn't a law. By the time we get to the Civil War, um, it was pretty much not even done anymore. And in the middle of the Civil War, when it looked like the Union was also not doing very well and things looked bleak that Confederacy might win this conflict, President Lincoln found this old proclamation by George Washington and he decided that we needed a national day of prayer and thanksgiving. And he declared the fourth Thursday in November to be that day. And it was celebrated by, of course, all the Union states. But since it was a declaration from President Lincoln, you can imagine the Southern states obviously did not take part. After that, it kind of was celebrated off and on throughout the country. And even some of the Northern states kind of lost favor in it. And then during the next huge conflict, we'll skip the First World War. We'll go to the Second World War. And yet again, the United States is in major conflicts. And President Roosevelt felt that we needed to have a national day of prayer and thanksgiving. And he's, he remembered by doing some research that President Lincoln did this and President Washington did this. So he declared the fourth Thursday in November to be a national day of prayer and thanksgiving. And it was moved one year up because if you know how the calendar falls, there are times when Thanksgiving is very late and then you don't have as many days between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And some of the retailers, specifically in New York, said, hey, can you move Thanksgiving back a week? Because we need a little bit more shopping season. And he did. And the nation was angry because it had become a pretty much a standard uh, to do that for Thursday. And uh, that was when Congress officially made it a law that Thanksgiving will always be the fourth Thursday of November, regardless of how the calendar falls. That's the holiday that we have. 
the people always want to associate it with Plymouth Rock for some reason, which astounds me after I researched and found out what it was. Native Americans have had days of Thanksgiving, obviously long before contact, and each nation was different. Here in the East, the biggest day of Thanksgiving was obviously the harvest time for all the foods that would be harvested. So it may fall in what is now September, the month of October, or the month of, of November, depending on what nation. If you were in the extreme Northern Territory, their day of Thanksgiving, which was only a, a week celebration, it wasn't just a day, probably would have fell at the end of September when they were heavily, heavily harvesting and getting ready for the winter season. In the Southeast, theirs might not be until November or even what we call December. And it was a time for of getting the village ready for the winter. For Ohio, it was a time of move. Most of the tribes in this part of the country lived on the floodplains of rivers during the summer and early fall. And then after the harvest, they moved to higher ground to their winter village. And this week-long celebration was a time to pack up and move and harvest anything and everything that they could for the winter celebration, I mean the winter move, and they would celebrate with all kinds of foods and dance and music and who knows. When Europeans came, they shared this. And the very first Thanksgiving with the Europeans here in the New World would have been with the Spanish in what is now Florida and with the Spanish in what is now the Great Southwest with some of the Pueblo tribes. Because you remember the Spanish were here long before the English. The next one on the East Coast would have been at Jamestown, which everyone seems to forget Jamestown and the Thanksgiving celebrations with the English settlers there. It wasn't until 1621 that the Puritans landed in what is now Plymouth Rock, and they had no idea what they were doing. These Puritans were not what you might call country folk, and they were in a brand new place. They had no concept of living off the land in a completely new territory. And had it not been for the native tribe there, the Wapanoag, the Puritans would have perished. Uh, the trip along was very hard for them. Not everybody on the Mayflower was a pilgrim either. You gotta remember they chartered a ship like we might charter a ship to take us somewhere. And then the captain and the crew, their goal was to drop them off pick up any resources they could, head back to England and get their check. And everyone seems to think that everyone on the ship was um, higher than mighty righteous pilgrims. It wasn't. Uh, not all the people that or came over to the New World were a member of the Puritans either. Some, there was a handful of families that wanted other. The History Channel did a beautiful documentary on this several years ago. If you can find it, I can't remember the name of it. But if you can find it, I would advise you to uh, watch it or listen to it because it's pretty historically accurate. They were actually trying to get to what was called Virginia. Now at the time, Virginia was a massive colony. It spread from what is now Virginia, what is now North Carolina, what would have been called Maryland. Um, the, the king at the time said, I'm gonna call this huge massive tract of land Virginia. They were trying to find the most northernest part of what was Virginia which would have been in now what is, I think, Delaware. They didn't want to be close to the Jamestown settlers, but they sailed at not the best time. They sailed uh, in late 1620, which was 
um, not the best time for sailing to the New World. And they ran into some all kinds of severe weather. You can imagine the gale force winds off the coast of New England in November. They had to make land as soon as possible because they ran out of beer. Water on the high seas was uh, not kept very sanitary. But beer, because of this alcohol content, was the thing that people drank. And because it killed the bacteria. And they needed to make land as soon as possible. And they figured make some more beer, not realizing that they were in a new world. The water would have been fresh and clean and not full of bacteria if they found fresh water. The first cove that they came into, uh, the weather was horrible and they kept looking for another cove. They eventually came into what was the cove of Plymouth Rock. They went ashore and they found what they thought were abandoned villages. These were the summer villages of the Wampanoag that they had left and went to the other grounds for the winter village. And they left food stores for when they came back and the Puritans raided and stole those food stores that were underground of the Wampanoags, thinking that God had left that for them. And eventually they realized that they had done something wrong. They did make some peace treaties with the Wampanoag, and the first few years, those Puritans had very peaceful and wonderful relations with the Wampanoag until later on, things got worse and the Dutch came over along with the English, and not only did they raid many of these Wampanoag villages, they destroyed whole villages. On the Mystic River in what is now present-day Connecticut, um, one horrible story, and this is true, the English and the Dutch rounded up some 900 inhabitants of the village, men, women, and children, and forced them into their huts and then set them on fire and killed every single one of them. And those that were able to escape out of the fire or tried to run away, or according to the English and the Dutch, put to the sword. And that's actual quotes from the writings of the time period. So there's some sad parts to what people are celebrating next Thursday. But the good news is if people will look at the history of how we got the holiday from Washington, Lincoln and Roosevelt, they might go, oh, that's great. And then remember the indigenous people and how the indigenous people helped the Spanish and the English and others that came and fed them. And give thanks, not just for that, but give thanks for all that we have. Next Thursday, I think there's going to be a lot of people giving thanks that didn't give thanks in the past for life and liberty and, and health and hope and pray that this pandemic that we are in will be over soon. And Lord willing, we won't have another one. And if there is, we'll be better prepared for it and ready for it. Absolutely. I kind of like the idea of, of this holiday going on for a week. <laughs> yes, that would be nice. It, uh, you hear about spring cleaning. Well, Thanksgiving was the time to get your home ready for the next season. Mm -hmm. So uh, change your bedding, pull out the blankets, you know, put away your summer clothes, pull out the sweaters and all that kind of stuff and come together with family and friends for not just one day, but several days and enjoy. Yeah. Um, whatever you sit down to eat at, uh, Native American foods are always brought up. People ask me, what are some Native American foods? I said, you eat some practically every day. If you had anything at any day with corn in it, or related to corn, you're eating something that is grateful to the Native Americans. Corn, what was called corn, is the English word for grain. So when the English arrived, 
any grain they saw, they called corn. To distinguish this new grain, they sometimes called it Indian corn. And originally it was spelled with a K. At some point in time, we changed it and started spelling with a C. But it only grew in the new world. It's originally a grass. It's a member of the grass family. And by the time the English got here, they had found tribes that already had 30 different varieties, including popcorn. Turkey was at the first Thanksgiving, if you want to call the Puritans that or the Jamestown, but it probably wasn't the main, main protein. You have to remember the Wampanoag are right on the coast of the Atlantic Ocean, what is now Massachusetts. So their biggest form of protein would have been seafood. They are the original people that gave us the clam bake, mm. uh, slow cooking food underground with corn and other types of vegetables. So all kinds of seafood would have been there. Shrimp, oysters, shellfish, galore. Deer, obviously venison, some duck, some, some geese, swans, goose, other types of protein. So not just turkey. So enjoy and have some other protein besides just turkey. Now, potatoes, no. And we love our mashed potatoes, but the mm -hmm. potato hasn't gotten that far, far north yet. It is uh, indigenous to just the New World. It comes from South America. And it took some time to go through Central America into the Southeast and eventually get to, but it is a Native American food, so you can have it, but uh, it wouldn't have been at the Puritans table. They, sweet potato goes back and forth. I think the sweet potato was there. It's indigenous to the new world. We call it the yam, but it's not. Yam is a completely different plant that grows in Africa and Asia. But the African slaves that came to the New World, the sweet potato reminded them of their yam. They called it yam. And even today, the USDA sometimes still calls sweet potato yams. Um, some nuts that didn't grow anywhere else, but here in the New World that would have been here, uh, pecans used for all kinds of things, not just desserts. And the pumpkin, a member of the squash family. Uh, the Native Americans used it for many things. Um, it's a vegetable. So if you cut up some pumpkin and put it in a stew and close your eyes, if you can't see it, you think it was a piece of potato because mm -hmm. it takes on that same type of texture and variety. There's so many things you can do with that beautiful vegetable, the squash. I have a paper at piles.com that lists Native American foods that are indigenous only to the new world. And so many people are like, wow, we had no idea. We think of potato coming from Ireland, it was here. We think of the sweet potato coming from Africa and China, it was already here. Popcorn is here. Pecans, cashews, um, black walnuts were already here. And some of them only grew here in the New World. Just about any type of hickory nut is indigenous to just the New World. And I can go on and on and on. Uh, one that we forget is a tomato. Only grew in the New World. Columbus took it back to the New World and it became a staple. But if you want true Southern Italian cooking before the tomato, you'd have to go back to before Columbus. So enjoy all the different uh, foods that Native Americans have given us wow. next month and uh, do some research. Maybe have a, a very, very traditional Thanksgiving. Have only foods that would have existed before contact. That might take a little bit of cooking uh, research so you know what, uh, how to cook some of these indigenous foods before we learn how to deep fry everything. <laughs> Called you out, Mr. Kelly. Right. That's calling me out because <laughs> I started deep frying turkeys a long time ago. I love it. 
that is that's, that's, a, yeah, that's just a lot of good stuff there Xbox nine I had no idea um, about the food itself you know the potatoes and tomatoes and pumpkins just kind of made that assumption that they were everywhere so mm -hmm. yeah and the one that I like to get in my presentations uh, one of my jokes I tell women I said now what do you absolutely positively need in life and then I remind them it's not a man and then every once in a while they'll start thinking and then some lady raise her hand and she'll say chocolate and I said that's yeah, absolutely that's where my mind correct. went. <laughs> chocolate. chocolate only grew in the new world mm -hmm. and oh, yeah. by the tribes in what is now uh, Central America and they passed it from tribe to tribe and the Aztec kept it a secret for the longest time until they finally either I think the Spanish beat it out of them how do you take this strange looking tree with this giant pod and turn it into this wonderful elixir? Mm -hmm. And then the Spanish controlled it. They had, you could say, a cartel on chocolate for probably 100, 150 years before they released the secret of how to make this chocolate. And we give the Swiss credit for adding milk. I'm sure somebody else probably did, but we give them credit for adding some milk and creating what we now call milk chocolate. Mm -hmm. Because it was coca, chocolate was bitter at one time. Yeah, it was the yeah. cacao bean is very bitter. Yeah. And you can find the traditional chocolates made a comeback in the past few years. If you go into stores, mm -hmm. you'll find a hot chocolate, meaning spicy hot. That's the original chocolate. The Aztec mixed it with chilies. And it was a drink, originally. Mm. Um, they didn't make chocolate bars or something like that and europeans turn it into the wonderful candy mm -hmm. uh, but it was full of amazing things that are good for us uh, even now scientists are always finding chemicals in chocolate that they have no idea what it is or what they do but we know the darker part is full of wonderful antioxidants and so many other things it was so valuable to the aztecs and the mayans that Chocolate seeds were used as currency. You could say similar to the way the Romans used salt as currency. Huh. I think some of our kids still use chocolate as currency. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> I really wouldn't. Trade you this candy bar for whatever. Emily or Mykia, do you have any questions that you want that we didn't cover? Or? No, I think you covered just about everything. Well, you're more than welcome. It's uh, it's a lot to cover. Yeah. Anytime you study, I use the term Native America. I don't put an N on it because I want people to see how vast mm -hmm. it is. It's massive. You've got just one continent, North America, that's 3,000 miles wide. Mm -hmm. So you can't expect that all the people would have looked alike, sounded alike, dressed alike, certainly wouldn't have lived alike. Mm -hmm. You can't expect the tropical people in what is now Florida to live and eat the same foods that would have been the subarctic people in what is now Alaska. Right. Obviously, very different. And I used an example. I had a friend from Ethiopia when I was in college. And like everybody, I assumed just that everybody in Ethiopia was the same African culture. Mm -hmm. And then I researched it with him and came to find out that there are 80, over 80 separate cultures oh, in wow. what we call Ethiopia. And that's a small country compared to the size sure. of what we call the United States. Yeah. And when I was growing up, I thought, well, Spain is Spain. Everybody in Spain is Spanish, right? 
mm-hmm. until I had a friend from Spain and began to teach me and said, no, there's many different cultures in Spain that do not speak Spanish because you have to remember at one point in time, it was separate city-states that spoke a different dialect and a different language. And it wasn't until the 1490s that um, Isabella and Ferdinand got control of what would eventually be called Long Spain. So we are the same here in the United States. Uh, you had all the empires of Europe come here and then all the Native American nations. And if you notice, we don't sound alike, speak alike. Um, we call pop, soda pop in Ohio pop. But if you go to, let's see, the Southeast and ask for a pop, somebody might hit you. <laughs> um, where I grew up in the Southeast, uh, all soda pop is called a drink. Mm. And uh, we say, hey, can I have a drink? Uh, give me something out of the drink machine. When I first came up here, I asked somebody at the university in the lounge, I said, where's the drink machine? And they looked at me weird. I had to <laughs> realize, oh, I've got to ask for not soda pop. I have to ask for a pop. In New England, I've got friends that tell me if you go into a restaurant and ask for soup, they'll look at you strange because it's all chowder. Or yeah. I can't even pronounce it the way they pronounce it in that part of the country. So we have that all over our wonderful country that gives you an idea. I've had friends visit me in the Southeast and come visit my mother. And they didn't, because of her heavy accent and lumpy words and other, they are like, what did your mom just say? We need a translator. Whereas I knew exactly what she said. Mm-hmm. And it's the same for Native America. We're incredibly vast. So use the internet wisely. Um, there you'll find some wonderful things. Um, you can always look and find the actual website of the, of the 574 tribes. The federal government lists the actual tribes in the state. That way you'll know you're going to the reputable website for that tribe. And last but not least, I'd like to plug my book. Maria can give you some information on that and I'll send you a link. I wrote a, a coloring book a few two years ago. Okay. And it's about Southeastern symbols and the designs that were in the Southeast before contact. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, send me that information and I'll put it in the show notes. And it'll be right up there. And then I'll send you the link for the podcast, which will be coming out at the end of the month. Yes, it will. So, but, <clears throat> I just want to thank you very much, Mr. Oxendine, for coming on this morning and sharing some great information with us in our audience. You are most welcome. I'm honored to uh, do some presentations for you. And I'll send you some links to the powerhouse.com, my blog, where my book is. It's, it's at Amazon. Okay. And it's at several other websites. Right. And I just wanted to finally add... I wish safe and healthy to all of you and everyone that will listen to this and uh, anyone that celebrated next Thursday, celebrate your own special way, whatever that may be, and give a thanks to whoever you uh, believe the creator is. As a Native American, I am Christian, and that is a completely other debate on some say, how can you be Christian for the faith that destroyed our people? I said, well, it wasn't the faith. It was the people in the faith that used the faith as an excuse. Right. But each person worships in their own way. And there is one thing that we can be grateful for. Here in this land, 
we still do have a right to worship God according to our consciousness. There are still some problems. Some natives still feel we don't have that right. The American Indian Freedom of Religion Act wasn't passed until 1978. Wow. So we really didn't get the freedoms from the Bill of Rights passed in 1789 until 1978. So we're still fighting for some of our rights under the Bill of Rights. But I am grateful to live in a country where I can worship and be grateful and thankful. And I wish the same to each and every one of you.